Good day. Welcome to another episode of the Audible Local Ledger Reads to the Blind podcast. You can get more information at audiblelocalledger.org. Stay tuned for today's reading. Good day, everyone, and welcome to today's broadcast of the Tuesday, December 5th edition of the Cape Cod Times. This is your volunteer reader, Doug Fagan, coming to you today, as always, from the studios of the Audible Local Ledger, here in kind of cloudy, overcast, and misty, Mashpee, Massachusetts. Well, every time I come in here, which is once a week, it seems like the time is just flying by. Hard to believe it's December 5th already, 20 days until the big day of Christmas. I have no shopping done yet, and I hope you're in a better situation than I am. Anyhow, with that aside, let's begin the broadcast today by taking a look at the weather, not only for today, but throughout the rest of the week for the South Shore and the Cape Cod and Islands. And here we go. Well, the first few days of this week are going to be a little colder than what we had yesterday when Monday it was about 51 or 52 degrees. Today we're going to have a high in this area on the Cape and South Shore of about 40 degrees. Tonight we're going to have an overnight low of 34 degrees, a few showers early, then some rain and drizzle. As I mentioned earlier a few moments ago, we are having some drizzle right now in Mashpee. Now looking at Wednesday through Saturday. Wednesday, we're going to have a high of 38, and Thursday, we're going to have a high of 36 degrees. Now, Wednesday, believe it or not, we might have a bit of a snow shower. It says here a little bit of rain, cloudy and overcast, obviously, with the potential for snow showers. And as I said, a high Wednesday of 38 and a low of 27 overnight. Now moving into Thursday, still cold, 36 degrees, partial sunshine though, which will make it feel better, and an overnight low of 28 degrees. Now moving into the weekend, it gets a little warmer, which is a good thing, at least from my perspective it is Friday. Not as cold, and we have some sun and some clouds on Friday. With a high, a nice high for this time of year at 45 degrees, and a low overnight of only 41 and Saturday, Army-Navy football game. Big deal, that's Saturday. And a high in this area of 51 degrees, which is very nice. Variable clouds and sun on Saturday with an overnight low of 43 degrees. Now looking at temperatures on the west side of the canal and throughout the Cape, always very consistent as they are today. Uh, Wareham and Buzzards Bay, you're at around 41, 42 degrees, respectively. Sandwich, 40. Barnstable, 40 degrees. Mashby, 42. And Falmouth, 38. These are highs for today. Hyannis, 40. Same with Dennis and Brewster and Chatham. Now, moving out along the Cape, we have 41 degrees as a high at Eastham and 40 at both Truro and Provincetown. Most of you have given up swimming for the season, at least I hope you have. Water temperature in Cape Cod Bay tonight, today a chilly 49 degrees. Wave heights 2 to 4 feet, wind direction north-northwest at 8 to 16 knots. Now moving out to the area of the islands in Nantucket Sound today, the water temperature is only 47 degrees, modest wave heights 2 to 4 feet, and again, wind direction northwest at 8 to 16 knots. 
Temperatures out on Oak Bluffs and Edgartown on the Vineyard, 42 degrees at both places, partial sunshine. And moving further out to Nantucket. At Seconset, we have a high of 43 degrees. Nantucket Village, a high of 41 today. So temperatures across the Cape and Islands, as always, very consistent. And again, cool today with a high of 40 degrees and possible uh, snow showers uh, overnight. All right, that's your weather for today, friends. Let's move on to the page one edition of Tuesday's December 5th, Cape Cod Time. Our first article here on page one is entitled, Don't Harm the Charm. It's by Zane Razak of the Cape Cod Times Network, and it has a dateline of Dennis. And here's the article. Front yards in town are peppered with signs urging, quote, Don't Harm the Charm. Coined by Dennis Citizens for Responsible Development, the slogan is a nod to the proposed Village Courtyard Project. Developers Chuck DeLuga and Paul Sullivan of Dennis-based Betterwood Homes wish to build 20 townhouse-style condominiums for residents 55 and older in the heart of the village of Dennis. Under State Statute 40B, that's Chapter 40B, the complex would include 15 market-rate units and five affordable housing units. The statute allows developers to override local zoning codes in at least 20% of the units built, and at least 20% of the units being built have long-term affordability restrictions. Dennis resident Steve Nelson is worried the development will hurt the environment and clash with the village's historic character. We have to do whatever we can to be sure that our tan our town stands on whatever legs they have to stand on to really work with them to get this project to be appropriate and responsible for the location, Nelson said. The five affordable units would be set aside for those earning up to 80% of the area's media median income. For Barnstable County, a single borrower or owner making 80% of the area median income would earn up to $67,700 annually, while a family of five could earn up to $104,450. On the market rate side, a draft of local initiative program application for the project estimates that two-bedroom units will sell for $975,000 and three-bedroom units for $1.1 million. An affordable two-bedroom unit could go for $200,000, at least according to the projected estimates. Leading us into the next paragraph is this question. How is Chapter 40B playing out on Cape Cod? Well, Chapter 40B, also known as the Comprehensive Permit Law, was enacted in 1969 in Massachusetts to expand the number of communities and neighborhoods where households with low and moderate incomes could afford a safe and affordable home, according to Citizens Housing and Planning Association. A community has safe harbor and is no longer subject to Chapter 40B when 10% of its housing stock is eligible for the state's subsidized housing inventory. 
A little over 5% of Dennis's housing stock is registered as affordable with the subsidized housing inventory. Its progress is comparable to its neighbors. Yarmouth has 4.96% of its housing dedicated as registering with affordable and subsidized housing, Brewster at 6.3.2%, and Harwich at 4.98%. In Falmouth, for instance, developer Saxon Partners of Hingham wants to use Chapter 40B to create the Easterly, which would be a 300-unit development on Sandwich Road that would include 25% of that being affordable housing units. The project is under review by the Town Zoning Board of Appeals. And over in Bourne, the all-affordable Cape View project, created in a partnership between Housing Assistance Corporation and Preservation of Affordable Housing, was approved under Chapter 40B in 2022. The development in Bourne will be built on a parcel owned by the Bourne Housing Authority near Sagamore Beach behind the Bourne Fire Department headquarters. All 42 units will be affordable to households earning less than 60% of the area median income, with 16 units further restricted for households earning less than 30% of the area median income, according to the Housing Assistance website. In Barnstable County overall, 30% of the area median income for a single renter is $24,200 annually and $34,550 annually for a family of four. 60% of area median income is $48,360 annually for a single renter and $69,060 for a family of So median income is a basal reference point for all housing units to be developed and the prices to be allowed to be charged. So 20 units are proposed for the village of Dennis. The 20 units in Dennis are proposed to be constructed in six buildings at the intersection of Route 6A and Hope Lane on two lots, which total 2.39 acres. The first larger lot at 744 Main Street includes a historic Greek Revival 1854 office building that houses Betterwood Homes Office and Paul W. Sullivan Associates, as well as retail space and a one-bedroom apartment. After a subdivision, part of this lot would be used to build four townhouse-style buildings consisting of 15 total units. The remaining five units would be housed in two or more townhouse-style buildings built at 18 Hope Lane, a 0.61-acre site opposite the first lot. Both lots would include ground-level and garage parking and shared septic wastewater and stormwater management systems, according to the proposals. In documents submitted to the town, the developers touted the site's location as crucial to smart growth. Concentrating development within an area of mixed uses and reducing vehicle usage is a key principle of smart growth. 
Upon completion, the village courtyard will yield a walkable, village-centered development with direct access to many existing commercial and cultural amenities. So reads the documents. So the question, what is the housing situation on Cape Cod, leads us into our next paragraph. Cape Cod faces a fierce housing crisis where a significant percentage of its workforce actually lives off Cape, and year-round houses have been snatched up and transformed into vacation homes and or short-term rentals. The median household income falls short of the amount needed to affordably purchase a median-priced home in all 15 Barnstable County towns, according to the Cape Cod Commission. In Dennis, the income needed to affordably own is $86,962, while the median household income is 67803 and the median sales point price is 385000 median being the point, halfway point between the highest and the lowest costs. So some residents are concerned about the development. Nelson and Sharon Machuga are members of the Denison Citizens for Responsible Development, which opposes the project. They are concerned Village Courtyard, as it would be named, will fundamentally change the historic character of the town. They also worry the project, which is near Chase Creek, is too dense now, and it will overburden an already busy intersection and clear-cut vacant land. Machuga said she wishes the project also had a greater amount of affordable units. Dennis does not need more $1 million homes. That's not what we need as a town. It's not what the village needs, said Machuga. So where at this point does the project actually stand? Well, Village Courtyard Limited Liability Corporation was created in May for the project according to the Massachusetts Secretary of State's website. DeLuga and Peter L. Freeman, the developer's attorney, each did not respond to a request for comment to the Times. On October 3rd, during a packed room meeting, the Dennis Select Board voted to postpone and a vote to consider the developer's local initiative program application, saying more information was needed at that point. In a letter before the meeting, town planner Paul Foley had recommended the move, saying he did not think there had been a give-and-take discussion with improvements that mitigate the town's concerns with traffic, pedestrian connections, parking, septage, density, and design. Freeman, at the October 3rd meeting, said those points seem to be things that are addressed at the zoning board. We have full intention of addressing those things, but I don't think it's our expectation that we would go through yet again site plan review, Freeman said during the meeting. What he's really calling for is more intensive review before the project is ultimately approved, which absolutely I concur with, but that's within the zoning board administration. All right, kind of a brief ending to the article that has to do with the Don't Harm the Charm, a 20-unit complex in Dennis that is proposed. So we'll follow that in the weeks to come and see how that works out. Let's move 
There are no more articles of local or regional interest here on page one, but there is an article about recession that probably concerns most of us. It's entitled, Economists Think the Nation Can Avoid a Recession. It has a dateline of New York, and it's by the Associated Press Network. So here's the article. Most business economists think the U.S. economy could avoid a recession next year, even if the job market ends up weakening under the weight of high interest rates, according to a survey released Monday. Only 24% of economists surveyed by the National Association of Business Economics said they see a recession in 24 as more likely than not. The 38 the 38 surveyed economists come from such organizations as Morgan Stanley, the University of Arkansas, and Nationwide Insurance. Such predictions imply the belief that the Federal Reserve can pull off the balancing act of slowing the economy just enough through high interest rates to get inflation under control without snuffing out its growth completely. While most respondents expect an uptick in the unemployment rate going forward, the majority anticipates the rate will not exceed 5%. Ellen Zentner, president of the association and chief U.S. economist at Morgan Stanley, said recently in a statement, The Federal Reserve has has raised its main interest rate above 5.25% to the highest level since early in the millennium, up from virtually zero early last year. High rates work to slow inflation by making borrowing more expensive and hurting prices for stocks and other investments. The combination typically slows spending and starves inflation of its fuel. Most of the surveyed economists do expect inflation to continue slow in 2024, though many say it may not get all the way down to the Fed's target of a 2% inflation rate until the following year, 2025. Of course, economists are only expecting price increases to slow, not to reverse, which is what it would take for prices for groceries, haircuts, and other things to return to where they were before inflation took off during the year 2021. The median forecast of the surveyed economists called for the Consumer Price Index to be 2.4% higher in the final three months of 2024 from a year earlier. That would be milder than the inflation of more than 9% during the summer of 2022. Economists are split, however, on when the Federal Reserve could begin cutting interest rates. Some think the first cut could arrive during the first three months of 2024. Roughly a quarter of respondents think it won't happen until the last three months of the year. So that, friends, is an article on the projection of inflation and interest rates, whether they will or not go up or down and when that might occur. All right, that's the end of those articles for the most part on page one. Let's move on now to page three, the Cape and Island. And here on page two, we typically find articles related to our Cape and Islands, and this is no exception. So here's the first article. It says, gardening opportunity, with a question mark, parts of the Cape move into warmer hardiness zone. It's by Eric Williams of the Cape Cod Times. Here's the article. Cape Cod gardeners are a wily lot. It takes guile and planning to wrest success from our sandy soil, and keeping a close eye on the weather is an essential part 
of that toolkit. So in the United States Department of Agriculture, the USDA, released a new version of its plant hardiness, that's H-A-R-D-I-N-E-S-S, plant hardiness zone map in November, those with dirt under their fingernails took notice. According to the USDA, the map is the standard by which gardeners and growers can determine which plants are most likely to thrive at a particular location. The previous map was issued in 2012, and things have changed since then. When compared to the 2012 map, the 2023 version reveals that about half of the country shifted to the next warmer half zone, and the other half of the country remained in the same half zone, at least according to the USD. That shift played out on Cape Cod, where the Outer Cape and portions of the Lower Cape moved from Zone 7A to the warmer Zone 7B when compared with the 2012 map. But Cape gardeners may want to think twice before filling their yards with less hardy tropical flowers and palm trees. Though it's not a technical term, the phrase a scooch warmer might sum up the hardiness zone shift in some parts of Cape Cod. There's no doubt that it's getting warmer, but the weather is very variable, said Cape gardening guru C.L. Fornari. If you plant hardy to Zone 7A plants on Cape Cod, you're in for heartache, he said. According to the USDA, plant hardiness zone designations represent what's known as the annual average extreme minimum temperature at a given location during a particular time period. In 2023, the map is based on a 30-year average. The average annual extreme minimum temperature for Zone 7A is 0 to 5 degrees Fahrenheit, while Zone 7B checks in at 5 to 10 degrees Fahrenheit. Of course, colder-than-average weather descends on Cape Cod every once in a while with repercussions that can affect the entire growing season for certain plants. Fornari recalled the cold snap that occurred in February when temperatures plummeted below zero, wreaking havoc on plants including hydrangeas, roses, and butterfly bushes. So, it may not be worth not be worth it at all to fly too close to the sun when it comes to pushing the plant hardiness angle. Plus, there's a big difference between a plant surviving and a plant actually thriving, said Fornari. There are still ways for Cape gardeners to stay in the game during the colder seasons. With the assistance of a cold frame or tunnel, you can grow cold-hardy greens well into January, said Fornari. Thrill-seekers might try a cold-hardy rosemary plant outside if they feel lucky. But Fornari thinks it would be unwise to invest in plants that push the edge of our hardiness zone. Don't bet the farm on it, he said. All right, a little article about what plants may or may not survive in the winter here on Cape Cod. All right, let's move. This next article has a statewide interest, and it's entitled Retired Officer, quote, Played by the Book, end quote, on Police Overtime Hours. This is by Bad Petrician of the Worcester Telegram and Gazette of the USA Today Network, and it has a dateline of Worcester. And here's the article. 
Prosecutors trying two former state police officers for alleged overtime theft appeared on Thursday to push back on their defense that such practices were widespread, questioning a retired Holden lieutenant who testified to playing by the book. Over several hours of testimony, retired Lieutenant James P. Fogarty, the former Holden Barracks commander, testified the rules did not allow, nor did he countenance, troopers to take federal money for hours they did not work. No, Fogarty replied when asked by Assistant U.S. Attorney Dustin Chow whether any trooper had ever complained to him that they should be entitled to collect overtime for hours they did not work. Thursday was the third day of testimony in the trial of former state police lieutenant Daniel J. Griffin and Sergeant William R. Robertson, commanders of a traffic control unit that prosecutors say committed theft by habitually double-dipping or leaving early on federally funded overtime shifts. Griffin and Robertson have argued that such practices were common among state police for decades. Prosecutors have presented evidence that, while some state police rules allow troopers to collect overtime for more hours than they actually worked, the federal grants that funded the overtime shifts in question actually did not. Fogarty testified Thursday that his troopers were required to work their entire shifts on federally funded seatbelt or sobriety checkpoints in order to earn their full overtime paychecks. Prosecutors showed Fogarty copies of paperwork he filled out in which some troopers were not paid the full amount, which Fogarty said was evidence that he required them to correctly fill out their sheets to reflect the time that they actually worked. Griffin and Robertson are accused of directing subordinates in the traffic program section to start their shifts late or end early and to falsely put in for the full time on their paperwork. Robertson, the government alleges, ordered much of that paperwork destroyed when he became concerned it could be used against them. Lawyers for Griffin and Robinson have not contested much of the documented evidence against them, which Thursday included a cruiser trafficking information showing they had ended their patrols at different times than they claimed, but have instead argued that what they did was accepted practice in the state police. One of several troopers given limited immunity to testify against Griffin and Robertson testified Tuesday that, quote, stealing end quote, of overtime in the state police dated back to the 1980s. Defense lawyers have argued that the state police union agreement was silent on the subject of federal overtime and that Griffin and Robertson, because of the alleged past practice of others, would have had no reason to believe they were doing anything wrong. Intent to defraud will be part of what prosecutors will have to prove proposed jury instruction filed by both sides show. At a separate trial alleging overtime embezzlement in April, a federal jury acquitted four Boston police officers after determining the practices they followed were baked into department culture and backed by superiors as the Boston Globe.
The acquittals came despite the fact that nine other officers charged in the same case pleaded guilty and then testified for the government. Prosecutors at the trial of Griffin and Robertson, their trial, have noted through questioning and documents that the federal overtime program, unlike other kinds of overtime, did not allow troopers to be paid a four-hour minimum even if they worked fewer hours of overtime. Fogarty was the second state police lieutenant prosecutors have called in to testify that he did not allow troopers to receive federal overtime for hours not worked. The first testified Wednesday. On Thursday, prosecutors presented jurors an email sent by Griffin in which a draft of the program requirements were spelled out. They also had Fogarty read for jurors part of the union contract that forbids troopers from collecting overtime while on regular working hours, something the government alleges Griffin and Robertson did by starting overtime shifts early. Fogarty testified it was common knowledge throughout state police that such a practice called pyramiding was forbidden. On cross-examination, Thomas M. Hoops, Griffin's lawyer, asked Fogarty for the name of Griffin's predecessor at the traffic control section and wrote it down on a whiteboard for jurors to see. Hoops also asked Fogarty to confirm the ranks of a number of other state top police officials, some of which Fogarty recalled, others which he did not. In earlier cross-examination, much of the state police's payroll director, Michael Faioli, Hoops suggested that officials higher in rank than Griffin were required to approve his timesheet. Faola agreed that it's likely troopers of higher rank signed off on some of Griffin's timesheets, but he also said it's possible for subordinates to sign off on them. It's by station. A subordinate could approve it, too, Faola testified. Asked by Hoops whether he had ever conducted trainings or issued directives on how to enter timesheets, Faola testified he had not. Prosecutors have noted that state police, every time they file a timesheet, have to click an acknowledgment that it is correct. Accuracy of time worked was also mandated on other documents prosecutors showed to jurors Thursday, including documents that the government and administration of the federal grants at issue had said were necessary. The trial resumes Friday. Well, much like another article today, that end of it kind of leaves you hanging. It doesn't really have a nice end to it, but at least you get the idea. Okay, friends, we are halfway through today's broadcast, and typically, for those of you who follow us, you know that it's at this point that we look at the various obituaries, and today it seems we have two, and let's begin with our first one, which is that of A. Lovell Elliott, E-L-L-I-O-T-T, and here is that obituary. A. Lavelle Elliott died on November 10th in Barnstable. He was born on December 4, 
1923 in Toledo, Ohio, son to Bessie Beasley Elliott and Augustine Lavelle Elliott. He resided in in the area until college. He also lived in West Virginia and in Columbus and Worthington, Ohio, where he headed his own advertising agency. In 1983, he moved to Massachusetts, where he dealt in historic documents and autographs. His home was on Cape Cod, where there was a kinship with the five Mayflower passengers, including Elder Brewster, from whom he was descended. A graduate and lifelong fan and supporter of Ohio State University, he was senior class president, president of the Phi Delta Theta Fraternity, and president of Sphinx, a senior men's honorary society. In addition, he edited Ohio State University's Sundial Humor magazine. In later years, he served in various capacities in the United Way as Settlement House president in Columbus, in organizations for the homeless, and as a volunteer at the Veterans Administration Clinic in Hyannis. His philanthropies covered a broad range, especially the Food Bank of Greater Boston. Over the years, he donated historic papers to universities, libraries, and historical societies. The National Cartoon Museum at Ohio State named his contributions the A. Lovell Elliott Collection. He endowed the Joan T. and A. Lovell Elliott Fund of the Guide Dog Foundation for the Blind, the Joan T. and A. Lovell Elliott Foundation for the Semper Fi Fund for Wounded Veterans, and the Joan T. and A. Lovell Elliott Foundation for Scholarships for the American Indian College Fund. Lovell was an accomplished photographer and presidential historian. His wife, Joan, preceded him in death in 2014, as did his son, Jay, in 2011. Preceding him in death also was four siblings. Also surviving are grandchildren, various grandchildren, nieces, and nephews. That's in addition to his son, Mark Elliott of Barnstable, Liza Elliott of Elborn, Illinois, and Laura Jernigan of Alexandria, Virginia. Lovell donated his body to the University of Massachusetts Medical School. A stone will be dedicated in Lothrop Hill Cemetery near his home where many ancestors, including Lothrop, are buried. Contributions would be welcomed by any of the causes in which Lovell was interested, especially the optometry giving site. No memorial is planned by his family at this particular time. So that, friends, is the obituary of A. Lavelle Elliott of Barnstable, who passed away on December 4th. Next is the obituary of Nancy Nichols, spelled N-I-C-H-O-L-S. And here it is. Nancy Nichols, aged 90, of Brewster, Massachusetts, passed away peacefully on Friday, December the 1st, at Pleasant Bay Nursing Home in Brewster. She was the wife of George Nichols, Jr., who she was recently predeceased by. Born in Flamborin, Greece, she was the daughter of the late Peter and Victoria Vangelo. She came to America as a young child accompanied by her mother to reconnect with her father and begin her life in the United States. 
Nancy was filled with great energy and a wonderful sense of humor, and because of that, she made countless friends over her years, first in Rochester, New York, and for the rest of her days on Cape Cod. Nancy is survived and will be deeply missed by her sons, Arthur Nichols and his wife, Kathy, John Nichols and his wife, Linda, Alex Nichols and his wife, Nolly, Molly, and Pete Nichols and his wife, Mary Beth, along with assorted grandchildren. In addition to her husband, George Nichols, Jr., Nancy was predeceased by her brother, Evans Mangello. Family and friends are invited to pay their respects on Thursday, December the 7th from 10 a.m. to 12 noon at the St. George Greek Orthodox Church in Centerville. Her funeral service will follow at 12 p.m. inside the church. Burial will take place at 1.45 p.m. in the Massachusetts National Cemetery in Bourne. In lieu of flowers, memorial contributions may be made to Broadreach Hospice, 390 Orleans Road, North Chatham, Massachusetts. All right. There you have it, friends, the obituary of Nancy Nichols of Brewster. And we are now moving moving to the lighter side in today's paper. Let's take a look at the Ask Carolyn column, where, as most of you know, letters, letter writers from out there someplace write in to Carolyn seeking advice for their particular circumstances or problems. So this headline says, Mom already undersaves but wants to give cash to grandkids. And here's the letter. Dear Carolyn, my mom, who is retired and on a fixed income, recently gave my kids, through me, a very large check just because, just because. I know that I should be grateful, but I'm not. My mom has been terrible with her money her entire life. If she's able to live independently, there's a slight chance she won't outlive her savings. But if she needs a higher level of care, which I think she will in the coming months, she'll run out of money very soon. She keeps asking if I've given the kids the money. I have not because it's a huge source of stress for me. I know grandparents like to spoil their kids, but this is well beyond typical grandparent spoiling. In the next year or so, when her money runs out, I am going to need to make some tough decisions about our family's money and how much we will contribute to her care. Decisions like, do I pay for my kid's college, my mom's memory care, or my own retirement? So I'd rather she keep this money for herself and not give it to my kids to blow on Funko Pop figurines. And now she is really hurt that I'm not more excited about this gift. So, am I being a jerk here? Signed, stressed. Okay, here's Carolyn's response. Dear stressed, this is a tough one. The short answer is no, you're not being a jerk for being mindful of the fallout from your mother's poor judgment. And no, you should not be grateful. But I think a practical answer would be more useful. Can you put this money into education savings accounts for your kids? Then you can say yes to having given it to them, but you still have it for when things get a bit hairy, which seems imminent no matter what she does with her loose cash. Unless you're talking high five figure giveaways. So here's some thoughts. That's Carolyn's response. Here's some readers' thoughts. 
One reader says, buy your kids something inexpensive so they can say thank you to Grandma. Stash the rest away against the, that future you are dreading. It may not come, and then this can be a college vocational training nest egg. The gift may mean a delay of Medicaid eligibility. This is the sort of thing an elder lawyer consults on. All right, here's another article sent in to Carolyn, another question via letter. Here it is. Dear Carolyn, what to do if you like or love one of your three grandchildren more than the others? They are only one and three years old, so really not their fault. And I and I'm embarrassed about my feelings. Signed Grandma. Oh, that's interesting. Well, here is her response. Dear Grandma, it wouldn't be their fault if they were eleven thirteen, would it? Or 21 and 23. Anyway, you hold it in your heart as your secret. Embrace it as your duty to make sure none of the grandkids is ever the wiser. Certainly not because of anything you consciously do. Preferences are somewhat normal. Nothing to be embarrassed about. Just cultivate connections with all and make it your guiding principle that each child deserves your best. All right, that's the... Ask Carolyn column for today. Take it for what it's worth. All right, friends, those of you who've been waiting with bated breath to learn about the lottery, the various lotteries, that is, let's take a look at that now. For those of you who play Mega Millions and Powerball, be it known that nobody has won recently. Thus, there's some pretty high-level jackpots. The Mega Millions jackpot, for which there will be a drawing tonight at 11 o'clock, is up to $377 million. The Powerball jackpot, for which there will be a drawing tomorrow at 11 o'clock, is up to $435 million. Quite handsome sums in both. Now let's take a look at the most recent drawings. Let's start first with the numbers game here in Massachusetts. The midday numbers game, which was drawn yesterday, Monday, December 4th, here are those numbers. In order, 1564. 1564 were the numbers for the Massachusetts midday numbers game. Now, the evening drawing, still on December 4th, yesterday, here are those numbers. 7886. 7886 were the numbers for the evening drawing for the mass numbers game. Now, moving on to mass cash. Again, drawn yesterday. Here are those numbers. 1, 10, 18, 26, and 34. Mass cash yesterday. 1, 10, 18, 26, and 34. Now for the biggies, Powerball, and again, nobody won, but here are the numbers from yesterday's drawing. 18, 19, 27, 28, and 45, with a Powerball number of 9. I'll repeat those for you. Powerball yesterday, 18, 19, 27, 28, 45, and a Powerball of 9. Now, the most recent Mega Millions drawing was drawn last Friday, December 1st, and here are those numbers. 12, 47, 49, 52, 65, and a Mega Ball of 12. 
Again, Friday, Mega Ball, Mega Millions drawing, 12, 47, 49, 52, 65, and a Mega Ball of 12. Now, the separate Mega Bucks drawing, which was drawn yesterday, December 4th, here are those numbers. 2, 19, 21, 28, 31, and 33. Again, Mega Bucks drawn yesterday, 2, 19, 21, 28, 31, and 33. And for those of you who play the lottery, I wish you good luck and say, as I always do, good luck, players. I hope somebody out there wins. All right, friends, let's move into the world of sports. And as most of you know, your beloved New England Patriots have sunk to another new low, having lost this weekend to the Los Angeles Chargers to bring their record to a two-win, ten-loss season to date, which puts them at the very bottom of the American Conference East, which is led by Miami at a record of 9-3, and three. Buffalo's next at 6-6, six and six. And even the Jets are ahead of the Patriots, having won twice as many games at four and eight. In the NFL, or the American Conference South, Jacksonville leads that by one game over Houston. Jacksonville has a record of eight and four, and Houston and Indianapolis both have records of seven and five. In the North Division, Baltimore leads Cleveland with a record of nine and three to Cleveland nine, seven and five. In the National Conference Division of the National Football League, the Eagles, who lost this weekend, have now a record of 10-2, and two, followed closely by the Dallas Cowboys at 9-3. and three. In the very bad South Division, Atlanta, with a, an even record of 6-6, six and six, is one game ahead of New Orleans, which has a record of 5-7. and seven. The Detroit Lions, the upstart Detroit Lions, are really good this year. They lead the North Division of the NFL at a record of 9-3, and three, which is three games ahead of the Packers and the Vikings. In the West, San Francisco, which many consider to have the best team in the National Football League, they lead that division with a record of 9-3, and three, three, three games ahead of the Rams and the Seattle Seahawks, each of which has a record of six wins and six losses. In college football, big news over the weekend where the committee, the College Football Playoff Committee, determined the four best teams to be in order, Michigan, Washington, Texas, and Alabama. Now the 13-0 record of the Florida State Seminoles, they were left out most likely because of the season-ending injury to their star quarterback and team leader. And they were deemed maybe a very deserving team, but not one of the so-called best four teams. A lot of controversy there, but in the end, many people think the committee made the right decision in terms of who were the four best teams at this point. Staying with college football, the transfer portal opened up yesterday, and some pretty big names are in the portal, and there's an article about this here in today's Tuesday, December 5th, Cape Cod Times uh, newspaper, which you might be interested in. It says McCord, that's Kyle McCord of Ohio State, 
is the biggest name to enter the portal to date. It's by the Associated Press. And here's the article. Ohio State's starting quarterback, Kyle McCord, and Oklahoma's starting quarterback, Dylan Gabriel, led a parade of quarterbacks into the transfer portal on Monday, the first day of a 30-day window for college football players where they can put their names out in search of another team and another opportunity. Oregon State's Aiden Childs, Boise State's Taylor Green, Arizona State's Drew Pine, formerly a Notre Dame quarterback, Baylor's Blake Shapin, and Utah's Bryson Barnes, along with Georgia backup Brock Vandegriff, were among other quarterbacks who did enter the portal. McCord beat out Devin Brown at Ohio State for the starter's job in the preseason and threw for over 3,000 yards and 24 touchdowns with six interceptions this year. Two of the interceptions came in the 30-24 loss to Michigan on November 25th. Ohio State coach Ryan Day was seemingly noncommittal Sunday when asked if the junior quarterback would play in the Buckeyes game against Missouri in the Cotton Bowl. Gabriel transferred to Oklahoma from the University of Central Florida and helped the Sooners regain their footing after Coach Lincoln Riley and quarterback Caleb Williams left for the University of Southern California two years ago. Gabriel led the Sooners on a last-minute drive this season against Stalwart, Texas, and threw the game-winning touchdown with 15 seconds remaining. It was the only loss for the Texas team that did reach the college football playoff Final Four. Gabriel ranks in the top 10 in division history in yards passing and passing touchdowns in two seasons with the Sooners. He passed for nearly 7,000 yards, 55 touchdowns, and he also ran for nearly 700 yards and 18 touchdowns. Gabriel's departure comes shortly after offensive coordinator Jeff Levy left to become the head coach at Mississippi State. Levy was also Gabriel's offensive coordinator for a year at the University of Central Florida. So, there's quite a few players that are now in the portal with many more to come. It'll be quite interesting to follow these players and see actually where they end up. To date, 11 players from Ohio State have entered the portal and one wonders what is going on there with the Buckeyes. All right, let's move. Before leaving sports, let's take a look, too, at the National Hockey League. We don't want to be remiss in leaving them out because the Boston Bruins are currently leading the Atlantic Division with a record of 24 wins, 17, uh, well, I'm sorry, with 17 wins and four losses. So they lead Florida by about three games. Detroit is next in the Atlantic Division. In the Metro Division, the New York Rangers have a record of 18-4, and four, and they lead that division over Carolina, which is a record of 14-8. and eight. In the Central Division, Colorado leads that division at a record of 15-7, and seven, one game ahead of the Dallas Stars at 14-6. and six. And in pro basketball, finalizing our look here at the various standings, the Boston Celtics lead the Atlantic Division with a record of 15-5. and five. They lead Philadelphia, which has a record of 12-7 and seven by three games. In the Southeast Division, Orlando leads that division with a record of 14-6, and six, followed by the Miami Heat at 
11-7. In the Central Division, the Milwaukee Bucks, with a record of 14-6, have a three-game lead over the Indiana Pacers. In the Western Conference, the Dallas Mavericks lead that division by a half a game over New Orleans. In the Northwest Division, Minnesota leads that division at 15-4 over Oklahoma City, which has a record of 13-6. And And in the Pacific Division, Phoenix, with a record of 12-8, is a half game ahead of Sacramento. And in college basketball, with Purdue having been beaten by Northwestern, the University of Arizona has moved up to the number one spot in this very early part of the college basketball season. Moving on now to other articles, here's one that has a relevant uh, influence here in our Cape Cod area, and it has to do with Harvard University, and it's entitled, Whistleblower Says, Harvard Muzzled Research, and it points to Zuckerberg donation the university received around the same time. This is an Associated Press article, and here. A prominent disinformation scholar who left Harvard University in August has accused the school of muzzling her speech and stifling, then dismantling, her research team as it launched a deep dive in late 2021 into a trove of Facebook files she considers the most important documents in Internet history. The actions impacting Joan Donovan's work coincided with a $500 million donation to Harvard by a foundation run by Facebook founder Mark Zuckerberg and his wife Priscilla Chan. In a whistleblower disclosure disclosure made public Monday, Donovan seeks investigations into, quote, inappropriate influence from Harvard's general counsel, the Massachusetts Attorney General's office, and the U.S. Department of Education, end quote. The CEO of Whistleblower Aid, a legal nonprofit supporting Donovan, called the alleged behavior by Harvard's Kennedy School and its dean a, quote, shocking betrayal of academic integrity at the elite school, end quote. Whether Harvard acted at the company's direction or took the initiative on their own to protect Facebook's interest, the outcome is the same. Corporate interests are undermining research and academic freedom due to the detriment of the public, CEO Libby Liu said in a press statement. In response, the Kennedy School rejected the disclosure disclosure allegations of unfair treatment and donor interference. The The narrative is full of inaccuracies and baseless insinuations, particularly the suggestion that Harvard Kennedy School allowed Facebook to dictate its approach to research, so said spokesman James F. Smith. The whistleblower aid statement quotes Donovan accusing Dean Douglas Elmendorf of subjecting her team to death by a thousand cuts after she began making robust plans in October of 2021 to create a research clearinghouse for the so-called Facebook files, which were gathered by former employee Francis Hogan to highlight public harms. Following the disclosures, Zuckerberg changed Facebook's name to Meta. 
M-E-T-A. Despite the company's public stance that Hagen was blowing internal research out of proportion, Donovan and other independent researchers considered the document's confirmation that Facebook's design had radicalized people, its algorithms fomenting racial animosity and encouraging ethnic cleansing and damaging teens' mental health. I believe, honestly, that these were the most important documents in Internet history, Donovan said in an interview Monday. Our role as academics is not to play favorites. It's not to do PR. It's to tell the truth, no matter how uncomfortable it makes us. And, unfortunately, I lost my job at Harvard as a result. Donovan claimed Elmendorf made it so that I could not hire and I couldn't start doing projects, halting her fundraising, barring her from holding conferences with more than 30 attendees, and preventing her from launching a podcast because he didn't want to, quote, unquote, raise my public profile. She said that led her to halt media interviews and publish only opinion pieces. Our plan was to go at the elections in 2024, Donovan said. I had raised $4.5 million at one point so that we could do our work through 2024. Donovan said that after her contract was cut short, She refused a severance package because she felt she would be complicit if I were to take in a payoff for my silence. Harvard hired Donovan, now an assistant professor at Boston University in 2018, where she led the Technology and Social Change Research Project. In May of 2020, she was promoted to research director of the Kennedy School's Shorenstein Center, where she also lectured. In its statement, the Kennedy School denied that Donovan was fired. It said she was a staff member, not a faculty member, and all research at the school must be led by faculty members. The school tried for some time to identify another faculty member who had time and interest to lead the project. After that effort did not succeed, the project was given more than a year to wind down, and most members of the research team remained in various research roles. Donovan said she was not aware of any search for someone to take over as head of the research project, which she founded and for which she had raised $12 million. In its statement, the Kennedy School said it did not receive any portion of the Chan Zuckerberg gift, which went to Harvard University for an unrelated artificial intelligence initiative. Both Chan and Zuckerberg went to Harvard, where Facebook was first launched. Harvard ultimately did release an archive of the Facebook files through Donovan, said, though Donovan said it was considerably less ambitious and open, more open than she'd have envisioned. Meta, now was Facebook, was consulted on redactions to the roughly 20,000 images in that archive, and the Kennedy School team managed it decided to make about 160 of the more than 800 redactions requested by the company in nearly every case to remove the name of low-level Meta employees or outside people for privacy reasons, Smith said. He added that the Kennedy School's Public Interest Tech Lab gave researchers early access to the archive in May of 2023, and it became more fully public in October. Okay, there's the end of that article, alleging... The Kennedy School at Harvard was stifling the research of a particular staff member.
Well, friends, we have come to the end of our broadcast for today's Tuesday, December 5th edition of the Cape Cod Times. This has been your volunteer reader, Doug Fagan, and it was my pleasure reading to you today, and I'll look forward to reading to you again next Tuesday. So until then, stay healthy and enjoy your life, and get that Christmas shopping done. 20 more days till Christmas. So long for now.